This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Monday, September 23rd, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Apparently, America loves its shows unhosted. As a podcast host myself, I was happy to see that the hostless Emmys did not go well. Apparently, content does not go viral if there is no host. That's just Immunology 101, people. Now, I was hosting the gist last week, but not in the usual host capacity. How are you? I am Mike. Let me get you something to drink. Sit down, perhaps on that divan. Here is some news, a pun, an insight, a fact, and then an interview, and then a long thingy with a lot of insights, facts, news, and if I'm doing it right, puns. No, last week was comedy week, and as such, we ignored not just the tragedy of the world, but also all genres other than comedy. For instance, farce, perhaps a type of comedy, perhaps a type of tragic comedy, as when practiced by this guy, Corey Lewandowski. I have no obligation to have a candid conversation with the media whatsoever, just like they have no obligation to cover me honestly, and they do it inaccurately all the time. So you're admitting that on national television you were lying there. What I'm saying is they have been inaccurate on many occasions, and perhaps I was inaccurate at that time. Further farcical, based on the explosive revelation that he routinely lies to cable news, if it suits him, was the fact that he kept getting invited on cable news to explain his position. So, I miss some tragedy, I miss some farce, I also miss some intrigue. Headline, New York Times, fearing spy trains, Congress may ban a Chinese maker of subway cars. Spy trains! The idea is that this Chinese company, CRRC, has the contract to build subway trains for major American cities, and they could include technology embedded within the trains to spy on us. And how are you really going to stop a stealthy subway car from sneaking out at night under cover of darkness and doing dead drops in small back alleys, narrow, narrow back alleys? How are you going to stop that? I mean, if there was just some way to limit or at least seriously curtail the free motion of a subway car to keep it from engaging in surreptitious behavior, to keep them, I don't know, sort of on track. If there was a way to do that, spy trains. But the last type of big story that I couldn't cover as I was diving headlong into comedy was this, the ignorable story. So before the action or protest at Area 51, the being, though not necessarily human being, Remulon being, I thought this story was stupid, and I thought to myself, leave me the hell alone. And guess what? It was stupid, and I left you the hell alone. My greatest contribution to news was not inundating you with the news you could not use. You're welcome. On today's show, the big, possibly very big story about Trump chatting with his Ukrainian counterpart about what to do about what he calls the Hunter Biden Accountability Project. That kid's got to learn some horse sense and manners and keep it on the old straight and narrow. And I will somehow relate this to the Emmys. Oh, yes, I will. Stay for that. But first, last week, we had on the show comic Marina Franklin, Aparna Nancherla, improver Amber Nash, screenwriter Dana Fox. They were women who kill! Today, women who kill, but really women who kill in the female-centric murder entertainment industry. What's really going on here? What are you hiding? Writer Rachel Monroe does some sleuthing. She is the author of Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. 
women, why do they kill? Now, let me caveat that by saying a lot of women don't. Also, some get killed. This is the question, one of the questions that actually I think about a lot because I have a podcast. And my podcast is in a category called news. And if you look at most of the other podcasts in that category, two thirds are news and another third are just about women getting killed. Why are we obsessed with what's called true crime, what is sometimes called white women in danger? This is one of the contemplations of a new book called Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. Rachel Monroe wrote it, and that's what she does. She takes four different stories of four very different women from different times and different motivations who are different points on this plot of uh, murder and societal obsession. And she tries to answer the question that way. Hello, Rachel. Thanks for coming in. I'm happy to be here. So you start off where I started off, in the world of podcasting, or at least at this crime con where podcasting was a big feature. Now, let me back up by saying, when you quote the different people who write their motivations, I had an insight. Because oftentimes, you know, the why we were there question, here were some of the answers that people uh, put up post-its proclaiming their reasons for coming to crime con. Sick obsession. So I can geek out on this weekend of forensics. My wife made me the patriarchy because I'm odd. Seek truth to be a nerd for a weekend. Murder is the new black. True crime obsessed. Fun to not get killed. Bitches hashtag crime con 2018. Justice for John Benet and girls trip hashtag cupcakes. Oh, there was also to catch the fucker and beat him at his own game. Here was my insight. It's like asking people, why are you into politics? And you'll get a bunch of answers that are very much of the liberal way of thinking, justice in the world and to make the world a better place. Then you'll get a bunch of answers that are of the conservative way of thinking. And I think they might have more in disagreement than agreement, even though they're both into this thing called politics or the thing called crime. Oh, totally. And I mean, I think these stories, they like open up a lot of worlds. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's writing a book about uh, these crimes that happened in the oil fields in the oil boom in North Dakota, right? And it's like a way those stories can they hook you with some drama and a whodunit and then you learn about this whole universe and the rules of power. I mean, they're often stories about like power, who has power, who is vulnerable, who gets exploited, who is at risk. And so like beyond the just the psychological, they tell us a lot about like how our world is structured. And so I think there's a lot to dig into there. And and I and I just I just reject the idea that it needs to be um, somehow noble or virtuous. I think people f- have a lot of anxiety about the culture that they consume now and want to want to feel like it is good, like that it's they're eating only good calories, you know, like the kale bowl of yeah. culture. And, and, and that the kale was grown organically and everyone yeah. was paid, you know, above minimum wage to to pluck it. I do think that's going on. I also think there are sometimes when genres of entertainment hit that we find an explanation like it's been argued against and I don't know if it's a strong or weak argument, but the case was we became somewhat interested in vampire content around the time that AIDS started scaring us. True, but it also predates AIDS and there's a lot of vampire stuff going on now. And if you want to talk to me about flying saucers and invasion of the body snatchers as a reaction to the Red Scare, plausible. But then I also think that other shows are just quality and or 
compelling and humans like compelling stories. And there's no reason why, you know, a Ron Howard movie about going to the moon hits in 2004 and wouldn't have hit in 1994. And it's, it's just a story about the media ecosystem having so little imagination and just replicating itself. So you have a show like Serial or you have a show like Making a Murderer and that are huge hits because they are made well and they attract an audience. And then all of a sudden... You have a zillion producers being like, bring me crime. I need crime. Right. I mean, what I think happened with Serial is we want to make a new story that takes advantage of the podcast space. Falsely accused person, you know, a third of journalism was invented to cover that. And they didn't really realize that they just had this nascent audience who is so into true crime as a genre. They didn't even think that what they were doing was true crime. They think they were doing a story of criminal justice. But once it becomes this giant hit, it tells the world of podcasting, true crime is where the money is. I also think there there is something that happens with the internet where people feel like they can participate in that a way. That is true, yeah. And there's a excitement about if it's a story about sports or fashion or horses or whatever that you the viewer have no space in that and people want to feel like they're a part of something and maybe you know politics is one way you feel like you can do something and then this true crime thing i think it is fed by these online detectives people who feel like somehow through through their own online research through googling through facebook stalking they're going to find the answer find the clue that nobody else did and and serial had that unfolding in real time aspect and that makes people feel excited they're not they're not receiving this content that has been predetermined they're they're participating in something that's exciting and they could be really important what is the history of that? I mean, did Michelle McNamee do much to catch the Golden State Killer? Well, that's that's an interesting thing that I, I always feel kind of shy about saying this. But yes and no. There's this mythology that she wrote this book. She became fascinated with the Golden State Killer. She There was this whole Reddit community that sprung up. They did incredibly extensive work tracking down old yearbooks, cross-referencing people on the swim team because one one victim said the guy had big calves. Yeah, you must know, have just, been a water poloist. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just a really, really um, intense online crowdsourced detective work. And when the guy was finally caught, the guy who seems to be the guy, through this DNA evidence, he was on nobody's radar. You know, all these, uh, there was like a thousand people on this Reddit and they each had these complex suspect lists and and this guy was on, had had come to nobody's attention at all. So on one hand, you want to be like, well, this is a testament to the the great limitations of the online detective that you you don't get to just solve a crime by being in your house googling like that that fantasy is is sort of a hubristic overblown dream now speaking of hubristic there's a word that i hadn't known the love of a romantic love for a killer and that is hybristophilia yes and the root and so i looked it up the root is hubris and so maybe we're overthinking this maybe well why do they do it i mean you love a killer for reasons of hubris things like oh i've identified him as the killer he the killer is somewhat defanged and now i have potency in in that i can treat him like a pet or someone who is worthy of my imagined romantic love right he's mine and you see and a lot of um, the women who become romantically attached to famous murderers, a lot of them have their own history of abuse. 
And so it makes perfect sense. In a way, it's like a very simple story. Like if you have been abused, sexually exploited in some way, then here's this figure who is known for exactly that. But usually they're writing to people who are in prison for life. So it's like the safe version of this threat. So one of your four characters didn't marry a killer, but married someone who served a lot of time in jail as an accused killer, Damien Eccles. Now, people would ask you, are you writing about women who marry killers? You very much wanted not to do that, or you thought that her story in some ways fits in better with the overall tale you were telling? Well, her story is interesting because when I first reached out to her, Lori Davis, uh, the woman who married Damien Eccles, who's famous as uh, one of the West Memphis Three who were wrongly convicted for for murder during the satanic panic era, she was very careful. She hadn't done a ton of in-depth interviews because she doesn't want to be perceived as that women who marry serial killers thing. And yeah, I guess I, I wanted to sort of avoid that because that seems to be replicating the sensationalism. I don't know. I wasn't sure if I would. That That is such a women who marry, who want to marry Richard Ramirez or Charles Manson or something. I feel like it's so easy to distance yourself from right, that and right. say, that's gross. And I see none of myself in that and condemn that. And I and this book is all about me reckoning with my own complicity in my attraction to these stories. And so I wanted to like to only write about people that I found some level of like connection to. I could see a facet of myself in them. And that was really true of Lori, who fell in love with this guy because she felt that he had been the victim of a great injustice. Do you think that... I think that there is a legitimacy sometimes to criticizing the lurid coverage of true crime when it's covered luridly. Like, I think Dateline covers it pretty luridly. I'm into the First Amendment. I wouldn't want that to exist. But you know what? If you watch that and you're obsessed by that, you know, maybe think about what role you have to play in this ecosystem. On the other hand, I also think that there is great examples of true crime, like the first serial, which is it true crime or is it about criminal justice that sometimes gets criticized for covering it luridly just because it's covering it at all? It's just an observation I have, but, you know, what do I, what can you do with it? Is it just, is it just a question of, um, you know, evaluate the tone and content of everything that's out there on a one-on-one basis? Is there any rule of thumb to use to see where, you know what, this is legitimate and good, this is exploitative and bad? I don't know. People people have been asking me that, like, is there some sort of litmus test? And I don't I don't know. Again, like we were talking earlier about the, the idea of virtuous media consumption or something. I don't know that that's that's a goal or it's certainly not my goal to only want things that are that are good or have some stamp of approval or are OK. But it's I guess for me, there's like certain crime stories that I that produce in me a almost narcotic effect. They have a kind of lulling, the like vegging out. Dateline will do that because you know you know the beats that it's going to hit. Your brain can kind of tune in and tune out, and you don't really need to. But know, also, the announcers, know. the voiceover guys. Yeah. But he would find. He was wrong. Exactly. Like you almost feel like you could write it yourself. You could stop watching halfway through and, and write the end of it yourself. And <laughs> and so I think it's more for me, it's not necessarily, or at least I don't feel like the person who qualified to, to regulate the industry and give a stamp of approval or not. But it's more just, I think, about my own relationship and when are these stories 
tuning me into the world and making me think like awakening right. me versus lulling me and and that's sort of the res- relationship I want to have to these stories and some make it easier. So it would be a good way others. to figure that out. Like what would be, is it that if you could predict the next thing that happens and it happens <laughs> exactly as you yeah. would predict it, maybe you're being manipulated by a formula? If it's making you feel good about yourself because that's well, the other thing that... But then again, how can, you know, like uh, reading a horrible story about like some guy in Cleveland kidnapping women and keeping them in their basement. How can that make you feel good about yourself? Yet at the same time, we should pay attention to that story because it tells us a lot of things about policing society, who counts as victims, that sort of thing. I think it's the stories that make it have really clear good guy, bad guy dynamics. I tend to be suspicious of, and that has that that feeling of reassuring you like, oh, I know what a good guy is and I know what a bad guy is. And implicitly, I'm on the side of good. And law enforcement is good and they do a good job and they're going to keep us all safe. You know, anything mm-hmm. that's, that has that kind of reassuring, implicit story, I think, is, is uh, lulling up. is a false sense of security. Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. It's written by Rachel Monroe. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Last night was TV's greatest evening. Browns versus Rams on Sunday Night Football. No, it was the Emmys, the show that awards excellence in television. This was the lowest rated Emmys in history, perhaps because the show had no host. Because there was no host that everyone could agree on, a couple of big award shows have agreed on the idea that there should be no host. Listen, I have the cure for Emmys ratings woes. You let Netflix broadcast it, and then Netflix can brag that 70 million people watched it, and we will have no way to check them, and it works out for almost no one. But instead, the Emmys go hostless. This is a radical break with the past. It flies in the face of tradition. It flies in the established norms of entertaining, but it's just crazy enough to fail miserably. So like I said, last night's hostless Emmys, lowest rated in history, this year's Oscars, the second lowest rated of all time, and you will hear, oh, but the Oscars experienced an uptick without a host. Yes, from lowest the year before to second lowest this year. Sort of like Tom Steyer's presidential chances. What an uptick. Perhaps a hostless show might appeal to the types of people who, I don't know, love the self-check-in at the airport or the self-checkout at CVS. I think that incentivizes shoplifting, by the way, but they would rather lose a bottle of Excedrin from time to time than pay a human. I get it. What's the Emmy's excuse? One tunes into an award show to see, A, who wins the award, and B, to maybe experience a little bit of laughter from the person who is there to entertain the audience, you know, the host. It is odd that these awards, all of which go to pieces of entertainment, would eschew as unnecessary the central entertainer. The Emmy literally is the Television Academy of Arts and Sciences. One category in which excellence is awarded is excellence in late night talk. Let us review the nominees and note a certain quality that all of them shared. Here are the nominees for Variety Talk Show Series. Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. She's a host. Jimmy Kimmel Live. That guy's a host. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. That guy's a host. The Late Late Show with James Corden. Wait, what's Corden The here? Late Show with Stephen Colbert. I think I know Colbert Last as well. tonight with John Oliver. John Oliver is performing a specific function, that which can be called a host. 
The winner, in fact, went to a show that was hosted, and the host of that show, John Oliver, accepted his award, and everyone clapped at the quality of humor and insight coming from him, the host given an award for hosting, and then the rest of the Emmy program, in which that enjoyable two minutes of host-driven content was cocooned, continued on in its hostless ways. You don't need the host with the most. You do at most need a host. Which brings me to the latest investigation into Donald Trump's phone call with the president of Ukraine. Here is how Trump described it today. We had a perfect phone call with the president of Ukraine. All right, perfect, perfect phone call. Okay, let's put that through the Trump translator. Where everyone is saying means almost no one is saying, and where no one knew means almost everyone knew. What does the perfect phone call mean? Uh, What's coming up is Constitutional Nightmare Shit Show. Yes, on State of the Union on CNN, Representative Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, said this. This seems different in kind. Uh, And we may very well have crossed the Rubicon here. Cross the Rubicon. He may have crossed the Rubicon. This guy's not only crossed the Rubicon, he crossed back over and then to and then fro and then started dancing. Look at me, it's a Rubicon and I'm crossing it. He said, okay, what if a fox, a chicken, and the president of the United States had one boat? And the rules are the fox will eat the chicken, but the chicken will peck at the president of the United States. The Rubicon, of course, is the river. Here's how Trump would solve the problem. He'd cross it, then he'd cross it again, and then he'd cross it some more, and the fox would eat the chicken, and he doesn't give a damn because he's into Rubicon crossing. Up next, Trump Rubicon, a huge tower on each bank of the Rubicon. Trump Rubicon is not affiliated with the Iranian National Guard Rubicon subdivision or the Russian oligarch Yigvelny Rubikonsky. Cross the Rubicon. But what Trump knows, or what he thinks he knows, is not what the Rubicon is a reference to. It's that no one will hold him accountable. And the reason he believes, and he's right so far, is that he will escape being held to account for the same reason that the Oscars and Emmys viewership is going down. It's nothing to do with a host. It has to do that we have thousands upon thousands of demands on our attention. The world is fracturing, and he knows it's becoming harder and harder to follow the thread. And this is why... I had to laugh with and mostly agree with the point that John Favreau was making on Pod Save America about investigating the Ukrainian phone call. Look, the reason that we think it's good politics, the reason we're for impeachment, aside from that it's the morally right thing to do and that he deserves to be impeached, is that we've argued that the Democrats can um, put on essentially a show and, and hold public trials and public hearings where there's enough media attention on that that uh, people and you know American people who are not yet on board watch these hearings and say, yeah, this guy does deserve to be impeached. Yeah, he's committed a lot of crimes. Yeah, he's really corrupt. And maybe if I'm on the fence, maybe if I'm going, yeah, I, I do need to come out and vote against him and make sure that the news is filled with stories about Donald Trump's corruption. And his wrongdoing so that the news is not filled with all kinds of stories about the Democrats and the Democratic nominee. That's that. That's our calculation. But that depends on the Democrats running a good impeachment hearing and running a tight ship and not falling into their traps. And I'm not sure they can do it. The Emmys themselves can't run a watchable show. And they have Bill Hader, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Maya Rudolph, Ben Stiller, Brian Cranston, and Michael Douglas. They have Amy Poehler. Congressional Democrats have Jerry Nadler. 
How are Democrats going to present a watchable show when the American Academy of Arts and Sciences cannot do it? And the Emmys, by the way, don't have 40% of their membership actively trying to thwart viewership. There is no large faction of the Academy saying, oh, go out, read a book, take a walk, don't even watch TV. Trump doesn't understand the law. He doesn't understand what constitutes a perfect phone call or how healthcare windmills or dogs work. He does understand TV. And he is banking that it will be exceedingly difficult to put on a cogent show that everyone can or will want to follow. I fear he's right. Luckily, there is one show on television that everyone is paying attention to. It had factions. It has factions and infighting, fire breathing, an old master, a young meister, public shaming, scorched earth tactics, a prominent figure who will not go away, a shapeshifter, a strategy of using poison, and the overall accusation that it's too incestuous. Talking about Game of Thrones. What did you think I was talking? Oh, yeah, the Democratic primary. That's true also. And the election. That is the one thing that people will pay attention to. So maybe for all of Donald Trump's distractionary acumen in the service of avoiding being taken out by Congress, there is still this huge, unavoidable battle, which for him might well be dark and full of terrors. And that is it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He's worried that on the spy trains, or at least the dining car of the spy trains, they might turn into a honey trap, or at least a tea that spills on your slacks when they suddenly lurch right outside a Philly trap. Christina DeJosa also produces the gist. She's been scouring the list of major items produced in China and is now worried about spy tanning beds, spy blenders, spy nose hair clippers, and spy toasters. All right, he's gone with two Pop-Tarts this morning. He's going to be lethargic by noon. Let's nab him then. The gist, I do not know why most women murder, but according to my Twitter feed, it might have something to do with being told smile. Just spitballing. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.